rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So I think Glenn Morgan has finally achieved his goal of writing one of his brother's episodes, and all he had to do was stop writing with James Wong, it seems. I I think so, yes. Uh, But the weird thing is, though, that this episode is almost a direct ripoff of Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Yes. um, Can't you see the Darren Morgan version of this episode and having it be amazing instead of just like a really, really, really good episode? Yes and no. I... I always feel very strangely about this episode yeah. because people love this episode. And we're talking about Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, of course, because that's where we are on the schedule. And I don't know. I, I, I feel like, yes, it would be a better episode, but I also don't know that it would have mined the pathos of the Cigarette Smoking Man in quite the same way. Which is true. And yeah. I think that's one thing that differentiates Glenn Morgan and Glenn Morgan trying to be Darren Morgan is that Glenn Morgan is much more interested in, uh, I think, respecting the characters that are in the show. And Darren Morgan doesn't really give a shit about the characters in the show to, to a fundamental degree. And I think that's the primary difference between the two of them. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, there is this is another episode that I actually looked up what people had been saying about it and... It's interesting how many people, like, had a lot of problems with the continuity of this. Like, the continuity of the episode makes no sense, right? Like, it kind of makes no sense that, you know, I can buy that the cigarette-smoking man killed JFK or Martin Luther King, but not both of them. It doesn't, you know, a lot of things don't add up. There are some, even within the episode, certain bits of continuity. And all of that, to me, doesn't matter because... This is all about getting to a particular point. This is a tone episode. I mean, we, we've seen how much uh, the mythology episodes don't really line up from episode to episode. And we're seeing a bit of that just within this episode. And it kind of it works for it, I found. Yeah, because, I mean, that that strikes me as very strange. Because one thing that I always suspected or believed about this episode is that I don't know that we're really supposed to take this episode as demonstrating what actually happened. I think that's part of the, that's part of the way that this episode works. We have an unreliable narrator. Really, we have two unreliable narrators because we have Frohickey narrating some things that he thinks he found out about the cigarette smoking man. But this is not in a situation where Frohickey is narrating the episode. And so to me, what this episode indicates is that, or, or how it plays out, is that this is an episode about the cigarette smoking man reminiscing about the life he wished he had. Yeah. Because I mean, it's what, meant- what this makes, well, what this episode makes clear to me is that he's a small man. He's very unhappy. Mm-hmm. He perhaps isn't as important as he thinks he is, especially with the dressing down he gets in Tunguska with the uh, the, the well-manicured man, I think people call him, the, okay. the guy who uh, hangs out in Charlottesville, Virginia, because he's a Nazi, I guess. And so to me, it's like, I don't know. I take the, I take the beginning of this episode as the cigarette smoking man reminiscing or fantasizing about the life he wished he had, not what he actually did, because I don't know. I don't necessarily actually believe that the cigarette smoky man assassinated JFK. I don't necessarily believe he assassinated MLK Jr. It it, it yeah. doesn't it, it seems almost ridiculously overblown to be true. You know, there is the there is a throwaway line that Frohickey said where it's something like, Oh, this is something I read out of a magazine and it's implied that he you know, found the dirty mag that he had the story published in, and that's, you know, and then he realized this lines up with certain things that he knows about the cigarette smoking man. So in a way, this is an adaptation of Frohickey's narration of an editor's bastardization of a story that the cigarette smoking man wrote loosely based upon his life story. I mean, this, there are, this is a, you know, several layers deep, uh, all that may have happened is, um, you know, the cigarette smoking man in real life, maybe he bought, maybe he, he was the one who requisitioned the gun that was used to kill JFK, and that's about it. And this has been blown up over the course of several retellings into he killed him. You know, he was at a meeting in which the, the death of MLK was discussed, things like that. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, be- in a way, this reminds me. This is a sh- This is an episode that does pay a couple debts to to Rashomon, which ends with which, as everybody knows, is uh, a retelling from several different perspectives of the same event. And you know, none there is a line that one of the characters at the end of the play says, which is basically that you know people want to make themselves be bigger than they really are. People want to have a sense of gravitas to them and this is the cigarette smoking man attempting to get himself gravitas when he is really just a, a a tiny part of something that is just so incomprehensibly large yeah absolutely and i i think there's a i mean there's a lot to unpack there but i i think that first of all what is difficult about the x-files in general is that for a lot of the characters, the cigarette smoking man in particular, but I, I think a lot of other characters that the show portrays uh, very obliquely in a lot of cases, that we are only seeing bits and pieces of their lives. Mm. You know, the, the characters that we have the most information about and the characters that we actually see a lot of their internal and, and personal lives are Mulder and Scully. And the cigarette smoking man in particular is someone who, at first glance in the first season or two, seemed extremely important, objectively so. You know, here was this mysterious man who was involved in all of these things, who was on the scene of all of these major events. You know, he's in every mythology episode. Mulder's yelling at him. He's he's having secretive meetings with Skinner, all of these things. And so you think, wow, this guy's really important. And then as the show has gone on, as we've entered the fourth season now, I think what's become clear, at least to some degree, is that the cigarette smoky man is, he's certainly important. He's in the inner circle of the syndicate, but he's not the person making the decisions. Mm-hmm. He's not the person who is driving the narrative, driving the action of what they're doing. He's the cleanup dude. As, again, you see in Tunguska where he says, you know my capabilities in a crisis. This is the cleanup guy. This is the guy who who cleans up the yeah. messes that the syndicator whoever has. And so, you know, and I also think that the other part of that, too, is that he seemed to have a relationship or a friendship with Deep Throat that once Deep Throat died, you know, perhaps he lost some protection. Perhaps he lost an ally. Yeah. And so he's a diminished person. I mean, I don't think it's any any coincidence that the the end of this episode, you know, it, it, you know, features him writing a resignation letter. I, this is not a man who, I mean, if he was really as powerful as we think he is, or as, as a lot of the audience of the X-Files seems to think he is, or even as this episode indicates he is, there's no way he would ever resign, yeah. right? Or be allowed to resign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, come on. It's a fantasy that they <laughs> would even let him resign. What are they going to do? Read the letter and go, okay, well, I hope you have a nice life on your boat. No, they're going to Here's a gold him. watch. You know, have fun. Uh, the show is really interested in very slowly deflating these people, right? Like, this is something that has... Uh, Krychek is something that that was done with. He was first seen as very, you know, dangerous, and now he's been, you know, then he was very quickly deflated to just be a thug. And, you know, while Tunguska implies that he knows a little more of what's going on than he lets on, that's, you know, kind of ambiguous and possibly having to do with alien possession. Um, deep Deeper Throat was somebody who had a lot of control, but as we got to know him, he... You know, as he got to get some sympathies from Mulder and Scully, he was eventually killed. Uh, Deep Throat himself is, you know, we we are seeing all of these people who are these gigantic, untouchable, unknowable people. And the show is very interested in peeling back their layers and showing that there is just a kind of sad, lonely person. I mean, they did that pretty early on with the cigarette smoking man. This, what The episode where Mulder goes into his apartment and he just has a small apartment and it's not really... And he basically says, like, look at where I live. You know where I live. Like, this is, what am I doing this for? Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not rich and I'm not living in a gigantic, you know, well-guarded compound. Like, I just have a crappy apartment in Washington. Like, not even in Washington. I mean, if you if yeah. you take the events of Tunguska, literally, he lives in Crystal City, Virginia, which is like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, 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 I mean, it, it's, it's fine, but it's not even Washington, D.C. Which is going with, uh, again, not to talk about Tunguska too much, but Tunguska's theme of you expose these people. That's the way that you, you know, the, X-Files is about bringing the monsters to light and defanging them that, that way. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's why I think this episode is 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 so interesting and so misread though because you know what what this episode makes clear and I think that that you could almost say, I mean you could almost argue. I don't know that I'm necessarily arguing this, but but I think you could make this argument that that musings of a cigarette smoking man is is really character assassination. That Ooh. you know, how can anyone in the audience take this man seriously anymore? And of course, the way you take it seriously is you shunt this off into, oh, that's one of those wacky, tonally inconsistent experiments that the X-Files continue, you know, increasingly likes to do. But I don't know how much of this we're actually supposed to take seriously. But I think you are supposed to take it seriously, or at least you're supposed to take the character flavor of it seriously. And, you know, I, I think that the framing of the episode is so interesting to me because I think the cigarette smoky man wants to be the lone gunman or at least Mm. wants to have that sort of conviction he's not sure that what he's doing that what he has spent the last 30 or 40 years of his life doing essentially the entirety of his adult life is a good thing or is meaningful or it, it certainly hasn't been personally satisfying i mean because here's a man who is writing I mean, we don't know exactly the quality of the story he's writing, but it doesn't seem like he's perhaps that good at it. I mean, the only person who ever published one of his stories was some, you know, weird skin mag. Uh, And so I don't know. It's just like, you know, he's spying on the lone gunman. He obviously seems like at the episode at first glance seems like it's going to be a very different episode than it turns out to be. But well, you know, he doesn't kill Frohickey in the end because I think in some respect, in some ways, he respects Frohickey and he wants to be Frohickey. Well, number one, I mean, we have Mulder and Scully, right? We have the Lone Gunman, which is three of them. Like the the, the these are Ursat's family units, right? We don't, you know, and you know, the two of them even work together. Who, you know, now that Deep Throat is gone. You know, who the hell does the cigarette smoking man even have now that uh, Mulder's father is gone? He doesn't really have Mulder's mother. He can't really have a full connection with. He's somebody who can't have connections with people. And let's get on a little bit of a meta level here. One of the things that I was reading is that let's do it in the initial draft of this. He actually did kill Frohickey. Uh, you know, De- Glenn Morgan decided to make that twist and basically all of the producers were just like, no, we're not doing that. So, in this way, Frohickey is more powerful. Frohickey has God on his side, and the cigarette-smoking man has nothing, and so his, I could kill you at any time I want to, but I'm not going to do it today. Number one, by divine fiat, he is not able to kill Frohickey. And so that's, you know, it's a very sad power move on his part when when viewed in that light. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I mean, and and take that even a level further, of course, is that, you know, not only I mean, God in this case is is, is the writers. I mean, the cigarette smoky man is a fictional character in a television show that is being, you know, his his actions, his words are being written for him. And so, you know, if you take it on that level, of course, he really has no agency whatsoever because he does whatever the writers of the X-Files want him to do. Just as his editor kind of changes the story to be whatever he wants it to be. He is just kind of at the whims of fate. Um, I think, you know, because I think in a certain respect, what Glenn Morgan is doing in this episode is, is wish fulfillment, is fantasizing about what audience thinks the cigarette smoking man is yeah the audience seems to think he's a very very important person who has done very very important and heinous things so here is glenn morgan to say here you go here's what he's done but of course i don't think he did do any of those things and let's even say that he did these things let's pretend for the sake of argument yes this is the man who has killed jfk who has killed martin luther king who has been present for all of these moments of history that who the fuck is he nobody knows who he is i mean i think one my little theory about this i don't know if later versions of the show uh contradict this but i think this jack colquitt i think that's his real name and that this, sure. you know that his stories are a really sad attempt at trying to get some fame for himself and it's been rejected like he is if he is this person who has done so much and seen so much and affected so much nobody knows who he is he has no fame he has no money he has no friends yeah and 
again, either he is somebody who has done all this and still has nothing, or he's done nothing and is nothing. I, yeah, I think that's right. And I want to go back to the thing about him having no friends, because I think the end of the episode, Act 3, with Deep Throat uh, uh, you know, yeah. under protest murdering the alien is, is really interesting and, 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 and you know, kind of gives us some new insights into yeah. how the show actually started and how these events actually started. Because I also think that that one is the only thing that I actually think happened. Yeah. But, well, but to go, well, to go back to, well, to go back to, to your earlier point though. Yes, I think you're right. But the other part of that about the Jack Colquat stuff and the stories that he's continuously writing over these 30 years is that, this is really the stuff of bad fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. things don't happen like this. A, a random person who's a captain in the army doesn't get pulled into a room with some shadowy people who he doesn't know. And then they say, we want you to kill the president. And he's like, okay, sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that that doesn't happen. That That's just that's just bad fiction. And I think the episode knows it's bad fiction. There is a degree. Now, I've actually never seen Forrest Gump, but you could tell that this episode partially did come from Glenn Morgan seeing Forrest Gump and fucking hating it, hating it. Like that, the box of chocolates monologue was something that he just wrote to write, you know, after, after that quote as his response to it. And... You know, that was actually one of the things I knew about the Excels was that monologue. For some reason, I thought it was Scully who had the lines. But, um, you know, Forrest Gump is a story about a random nobody who managed to, to affect history positively in all of these ways. And, you know, the character of Forrest Gump is, to put it charitably, a simple and not particularly intelligent fellow who, you know, manages to touch everybody's lives positively, and the cigarette-smoking man is somebody who is very smart and very, you know, capable in a lot of ways, and, you know, this episode is saying, well, he would have affected history negatively, but again, you know, isn't part of the Forrest Gump thing that he is somebody who finds himself loved and, you know... In, uh, appreciated by the people around him and the cigarette smoking man is not. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are lots of problems with Forrest Gump and I don't know that I want to talk too much about Forrest Gump, but yeah, I, I think that's right. And that, you know, in a certain sense, you know, the cigarette smoking man is the exact inversion yeah, of the, Forrest the Gump dark character. mirror of it. He, he, he drives people away. I mean, he has no friends. He has no family. He, he has no life, essentially. I mean, he has given his entire life to this thing. And it, again, it hasn't gotten him anything. It hasn't even gotten him, you know, simple creature comforts. I mean, he, you know, he lives in an apartment from that one episode that, that charitably speaking, looks like an SRO from the 50s. Like he's sitting alone in a beat up chair watching a tiny television, drinking scotch in a dark apartment. You know, this is not a guy who's having a good life. <laughs> and what's sad about it is that there are, again, that third act is an attempt at i mean he gives everybody the same exact tie he's wearing and that's so pathetic and poignant and it's this weird like attempt to reach out and yet when you know his one staffer you know invites him to his house for christmas you know that is an attempted moment of connection and he's just unable to deal with it i mean he's just so like oh i i i i I, I, i'm going out with a, a family and it's very obvious he's bullshitting it but you know, I know. You know, I, I. It's partially his own fault, and partially just his circumstances that he has nobody. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, and I, I think that um, that's a good way to segue into to the the third act because I don't want to skip over the first two, and I think the structure of the episode is is quite interesting as well, uh, especially with the 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 very uh, you know <laughs> the very artistic second act, which is all in black and white. Um, and even the colors of the first act aren't quite as aren't normal, you know, coloration. Yeah, of course. But I, I think that the third act is particularly interesting because, like I said before, it's the only one that I actually think happened because it just seems reasonable that it happened. You know, the X Files is a show that posits that aliens exist. We know aliens exist. We we have seen them. Um, we we know that the cigarette smoking man and Deep Throat were working for the syndicate. This is all information that we have. So you know, back in 1991, with this alien getting shot down and captured, and the cigarette smoking man, I think what essentially happens here, and this is a theory, but 
it seems to me that the cigarette smoking man and, and Deep Throat in that scene, they're friends. And I think that, or, or at least if they're not friends, they are friendly. And I think that they have a, a respect for each other. And I think that they protected each other. In a different life, they would be going to each other's houses, but their circumstances is not such. Yeah. Exactly. And when the cigarette smoky man essentially forces Deep Throat to, to kill that alien under under protest, he, he doesn't want to do it. Um, you know, to me, I read that moment as the breaking point for Deep Throat. Yeah. That, you know, let, let's because let's slot this into the chronology of, of the X-Files as we know it. You know, 1991, 1992, we, we know that Mulder uh, requested an assignment to the X-Files. We know that in 1992, 1993, Scully joined him. And so we and we also know that Deep Throat, uh, you know, appeared in the second episode of the show. So that was the first time that Mulder and Deep Throat met. And that was 1993. So what you have here, essentially, I think, is a Deep Throat that that was his breaking point yeah. that that was the realization for him to say, you know what? I'm done with this. I want to go off and I want to, you know, uh, help the other side. So in a sense, the cigarette smoky man kind of helped his own demise. Now, the other part of that too, of course, is that I don't know how much the cigarette smoky man actually doesn't want Mulder to succeed, but that's another question. That's another question entirely. <laughs> Number one, there is the part where he says, you know, if this, if, if this alien's alive, it would, uh, accelerate Bill Mulder's project by about 10 years. So we still don't quite know what Mulder's dad was working on, but he wants this project to succeed, we know. And I think the way the framing of the show makes it seem that killing this alien is a bad thing. And so, you know, he does have some sympathies towards that. And there is also the bit where he insists to Deep Throat, I've never killed anybody. And while certainly... Cigarette Smoky Man is capable of lying, he is capable of deceit, and Deep Throat doesn't believe him for a second. Why would he lie at this particular moment about that? I don't know. That's, I mean, you know, like, uh, I, 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 is it a simple, I've never killed anybody of my own volition, I've been a tool of other people who have told me to do things, but at the same time in the MLK segment, he's the one who actively decides that, no, we have to do an assassination while everybody's right. saying we could just discredit, we could make this porn film. Um, I mean, it's a really weird thing for him to claim 10 minutes after we've seen him kill two major historical figures. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, and I, I think that that's part of, again, what makes me think that the third act is the only quote-unquote mm. true one, because it, it doesn't really line up with the other two. Yeah. It, it's it's much more realistic. It's much more naturalistic. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, there's an alien, and the alien's being shot in the head, but, you know, aside yeah. from that, uh, in terms of the X-Files, it's natural. Yeah, within the world of the X-Files, aliens exist, and so, yeah. Uh, Right. And so, you know, whereas the other two acts in this episode are, 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 like I said before, they're complete wish fulfillment. They're just, they're they're fantasies from a small man who wishes he was more important than he was. And so, you know, and I don't even know that the cigarette smoking man really would actually want to kill anyone. I think that's the other part of it. Hmm. I, I just think that he doesn't really... I don't know. At the end of the day, he's not satisfied with his life. And... He's trying different ways to satisfy himself, and then when Deep Throat ultimately gets killed at the end of the first season, there there just seems to be a lot of a lot of stuff going on. I mean that this whole entire episode recontextualizes so much of his other appearances, yeah. including like the end of the third season when he goes to see uh, Mulder's mother, for example. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on here that really makes you think that this is ultimately a man who wishes he could connect with people yeah. but just can't. It's really funny. The uh, while dramatically killing Deep Throat off at the end of the first season made the most sense. That was the right choice. The show really regrets regrets doing that because they found as many opportunities to bring the character back as they can. I mean, you get you know you get the sense they loved working with Jerry Harden. I love seeing him anytime he's on. I love his voice. Um. You know, it, it, it's just a... I mean, that that obviously does fit into why they didn't kill Frohickey off. I mean, I doubt anybody is going to ever... I doubt that Deeper Throat had any fans and that anybody is going to miss him, but 
Um, you know, I, I, we're seeing the return of Crycheck. I think the show is now going to get very uh, leery of killing off its characters because, again, they did it to Deep Throat. It was a big shocking moment. It was the right choice, but boy, are they trying to take back that decision in as many ways as they can. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I definitely think that deep, killing Deep Throat was the right choice dramatically. Would I have liked him to stay around? Yeah, probably. But I don't know that it would have driven yeah. the show forward in the same way. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's good now, that they've figured out a way to have it both ways as much as they can, though. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Now, I guess the, the, the last thing to say about this, though, is, or at least the last thing I have to say, is, you know, the other part of this that I find so interesting, you know, as we're talking about this as an episode about wish fulfillment featuring a person who is incapable of connecting with another human being on an emotional level is that who does he choose to or who does he fantasize about murdering he he fantasizes about about murdering the the two men you know let and, and let's put this in its proper historical context we're talking about the 1990s now i think that there is generally uh generally speaking jfk's legacy is is becoming less and less uh uh important as the years mm. go on i i think that that uh his his legacy is being tarnished a bit um especially as revelations come out about his uh you know his his sexual harassment his philandering ways uh you know kind of how how bad he was at being president in a sense uh, um that that you know i certainly don't think it was a good thing that he was assassinated of course but you know, his assassination sort of calcified his reputation in the minds of America in a way. And it, it really took 40 or 50 years before people could actually start to soberly and objectively yeah. look at his work as president. So so you kind of have to look at it that way that, that you know, in the 90s, this was not happening yet. Um, and of course, the ama- JFK is the conspiracy, right? Like that. Yes, it, of course. That yeah, that's the other part of it too. I mean, nineteen ninety one, the, the Oliver Stone JFK movie came out. I mean, there's a lot of different areas that, that that this makes sense to feature as a pivotal moment in this episode, and then the X Files. But you know, JFK and MLK both were men who were very good at schmoozing, very good at connecting with people, very good at. Mm. I think MLK Jr. in particular. I don't even want to use the word schmooze. It it kind of dishonors the man. You know, he was, uh, you know, one of the greatest Americans to ever live. And and so, yes, he had his problems as we all do, and we're all human. But you know, that is interesting to me as well. That these are two men who connected with Americans and connected with people on a very fundamental level. And the cigarette smoking man is fantasizing that he was the one who assassinated both of them. Yeah, I mean, this is not a this is not a happy man. This is a sick man. And you know, I have to say, killing both of them is what cement, as you just said. You know, the, the death of JFK is what cemented him as this icon for a while. And same with MLK; they became martyrs. So in a way, he's you know. Well, and I think I mean not not to cut you off, but I think you know it's kind of an inversion though because. JFK's legacy at the time was was a bit, you know, he was certainly seen as a young president, as a dynamic president. But, you know, there were also questions surrounding exactly how he became president, you know, that that it's now widely understood that he stole the presidency, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, that there was vote stuffing in Illinois and other places and that he probably didn't actually win the election. And one of my favorite, or well, it's not the best word, but it's the word we have, anecdotes that my mother has always said about my grandfather, who was born in 1931, is that whenever uh, MLK Jr. was on television, he would go, oh, that troublemaker. Hmm. You know, so MLK was not, uh, he was widely seen as uh, a counter-revolutionary, as a- Rabble rouser. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean- you know, that that scene in the second act when, uh, uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is sitting with the cigarette smoking man and they're talking about all the ways that they're, they're trying to discredit MLK Jr. That actually happened. Yeah. I mean, the the FBI in the 60s was essentially an MLK Jr. discreditation machine and they didn't really do anything else. You know, so there's a lot of stuff to unpack in terms of American history and culture in this episode. But at the end of the day, the cigarette smoking man wanted to kill the two men who a lot of Americans looked up to. So that says more about the man's state of mind to me than anything else. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we'll move on to Tunguska. But before we do that, I just want to take an opportunity to remind all of you that this podcast is listener supported. We do appreciate all of the donations that you give us. If you would like to give us a little bit of your money, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. All right. It's time for the mythology episode, Richard. I'm, We've got Tunguska. We've got shirtless Mitch Pileggi, which I... You know, th- this show has done a lot of things that were unexpected and that were the right decisions. And I would not have initially thought that a shirtless, you know, Skinner was what I wanted to see. But, you know, the show, I trust it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the show tells us to trust no one. But you know what, X-Files? I make an exception for you. <laughs> yeah, who knew Mitch Pelugi was that ripped? Um, <laughs> s- let's just talk about Mitch Pelugi for 20 <laughs> so once again we have the first part of a two-parter it's an open question about what's going to happen uh what are you thinking about the mythology what what's happening here richard there's a l- I'll just i'll just do my normal check-in with you at the beginning of each mythology two-parter now uh this sh- i think this episode was the show kind of ballsily revealing its hand Krychek has this line, there is no truth. These men, they're making it up as they go along. That is the X-Files statement on its own mythology, I think. <laughs> yes, I, I would agree with you. Uh, we have no, this is... you know, we have no new elements this time. I, 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 a little bit about Tunguska, but that's, you know, just another exotic location for Mulder to get in trouble in. Um, Everything else is stuff we've kind of known or we've seen before. It's just combining them in different ways. It's a, it's a tense episode. The ending is very scary. And I don't know. I, I, I like the mythology episodes. I'm still not at the point where I'm tired of them. Again, I'm not expecting that much from them. I'm expecting just kind of tone poems in their way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that what I remember from this episode in particular is is individual scenes, is individual moments. You know, I think about Scully testifying to Congress. Yeah. Yeah, I think about Mulder in that room strapped to that thing with the black oil coming down to him. You know, I, I, I think of shirtless Mitch Pelegi. I think of, uh, uh, you know, I think of the guy in the suit who is dead or not dead. This is an episode that is primarily about the fan reaction, I think, to these episodes where at this point it's almost become sort of this like self-fulfilling prophecy that you're just going to have these like sort of fan servicey moments. I mean, hmm. why the hell is everyone punching Crycheck all the time? <laughs> you know why? Because the audience wants to punch Crycheck, so why not? Yeah, I, I I appreciated that. They're doing so much unethical treatment of him. But, you know, something is fucking Krychek. He deserves it now. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just like, it, it's so funny. You know, the first thing that Skinner does when Kry, when he sees Krychek is he sucker punches him. You know, uh, Krychek and Mulder in the car at, at Dulles Airport. Yeah. And he just like punches him in the head. Yeah. You know, there's no, it, it's just bizarre behavior for them. But... It, it it's just more of a stand-in for what the audience wants to do, I think, than anything else. Well, as we said, you know, music is of a cigarette-smoking man was the cigarette-smoking man's wish-fulfillment episode. This is the audience's wish-fulfillment episode. Because, I mean, like, you know, I wouldn't say that it doesn't give us any new information. I think it gives us a little bit of new information in that the black oil stuff, whatever it is, uh, is more understood to be out in the world than otherwise yeah. it was believed to be but aside from that i don't know i mean it, it's just kind of a series of events that happens yeah um i mean i love the dumb customs agent who's just like i'm gonna open these biohazardous things and he's saying like no that's biohazard that's by bio- i'm just gonna open it like in what world? Like, if you think there is something hazardous in any way, I mean, obviously there's something up with it. Even if you don't think it's going to be an alien, uh, I mean, obviously you don't think it's going to be some kind of weird amorphous alien creature, but you know, it, it could be toxic in some way. It could smell really bad. He's putting no, like, is the, was pre-9-11 customs really like that? Um... Yeah, <laughs> I, I do think that 
there is a certain degree of, I don't know. I, I look at this episode and it's very well done. It's very entertaining. It's very suspenseful, but it's also really stupid. Yeah. Like, like there's a, there's an element of leaning into the stupidity of the mythology at this point that is, is kind of admirable in a way, you know, like the customs agent just opening up the biohazard containers. Why would he do that? That, that makes no sense. Yeah. You know, uh, a Krychek just kind of like showing up with no explanation. I mean, the last we saw of Krychek, he was stuck underground, like 14 stories underground in a missile silo in North Dakota. How did he get out? Well, you know. I mean, yeah, he gives this explanation of, oh, well, they were salvaging and they found me and now I hooked up with them. And now, obviously, I don't think that Krychek is fully human at this point. That's, you know, my idea. Yeah, that could also be, of course. He was trapped with an alien artifact and we know that aliens possess people in this show somehow and it has something to do with black oil. So, you know, he's not entirely Krychek now, especially the scene where he is hanging on the balcony and throws the guy over. I mean, that's implied to be some, you know, Krychek's a strong guy, but I don't think he's quite that muscly, you know? so there He's is a-, a strong guy with a stupid haircut, as Mulder says. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how Mulder's so mean to him. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I think there is, there, you're right. Like, there, there are things that Krychek does in this episode that you kind of, in the moment, you don't really think about them, but when you're thinking about them after you watch the episode, you're like, huh. So he was chained to a thing outside. He was hanging by his wrist, which would probably dislocate it or break it. I mean, I don't think the human wrist is really designed to hold all the body weight of a man. And if he's hanging by, I I mean, that would... I, I think the term is degloving when a when you get your all of your skin scraped off. That probably would have happened if he's hanging by the weight of the handcuffs. Yes. The, the point is, he would be a lot more, in, you know, hurt by that. There is something else going on there. There's something else going on there. I mean, obviously, like pulling the guy over and, and throwing him off the railing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in this episode that you could just kind of have to go, what what's going on here? Yeah. Like, why is this happening? And, you know, we don't know, right? I, and, and I think that that's the other part of it is that Krychek seems to have, I mean, again, I mean, Krychek is just, at this point, he is the way that mythology episodes spiral out of control. He shows up. He says something. Mulder and, Scu- Mulder and Skinner and Scully all have their insult- insulting time for Krychek. And then something happens and Krychek is revealed to not be what he appears to be. Now, of course, they're catching on to that. But, you know, I don't know. It's like, why do they just not take him to, like, a prison? Like, it's just, you know, there's there's things about it that you just kind of have to accept. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm struggling to, to to talk about this episode because I just fundamentally don't know that there's anything to talk about. Like, it's a funhouse ride. Yeah, I mean, I, I find we're getting to that point with mythology episodes. It's not in a bad way. I had a great time with this episode. I am really looking forward to seeing next week's episode. Again, how the hell is Mulder going to get out of this one? What's going to happen? We've seen one guy get black oiled and it was very bad. Like... What's going to happen to Mulder? How's he going to get de-oiled? What's, go- what's going on? What's Krychek up to? What's Who's that guy that in the gulag that's talking to Mulder, you know? How, what's Scully going to do, you know? How is she going to get out of the Senate subcommittee hearing? I, you know, all of these questions are there, and they're exciting answers. I, they're exciting questions, but they are still questions. And, you know, I, I know this is a repeating theme but it seems like i mean it's an easy and kind of stupid method of criticism to poke holes and things and to say you know this doesn't line up properly and here's a plot hole and this doesn't make any sense and this wouldn't happen to real life in real life and i think that kind of misses the forest for the trees because a lot of where the x-files gets its weird lovecraftian elements is creating this abomination out of questions right like it's just questions piling on top of questions and that's what's scary the fact that everything is so unknowable i mean this is an episode in which the very concept of truth is scoffed at and very and repeatedly throughout the series Mulder's quest for the truth is almost framed as noble but very naive that 
he thinks that this is something that they could get to, that there is an answer to all of this. And again, the fact that I, I, I think that the source of the series horror la- lies in the fact that every time you answer one question, you know, you cut off one head and six other heads are going to appear. There's going to be another half dozen questions that appear and that stuff is not going to make sense. And that we, you know, this is Scully's point that she makes a lot of the time is that, you know, there is nothing outside the natural world, right? Like you, there is nothing outside of science. There's just questions that we can't answer yet. We don't have all the information. There is an explanation for all of this. All of this is going to make sense. And if it seems like an unsolvable puzzle, and I think the X-Files is attempting to thwart that by saying that there is, I mean, that's one of the, again, I mentioned Lovecraft. A lot of Lovecraft's horror comes from a very anti-intellectual place in that there is stuff that cannot be understood by the scientific worldview, uh, that there is stuff that makes no sense. And this is, I wouldn't say the X-Files goes that far. And the X-Files is certainly a much more optimistic series than that, but it does suggest that there is stuff that the truth is is an impossible goal maybe yeah because i mean let's take a step back then because there there's two big questions in my mind and i think that the mythology episodes as i said before you know it's sort of like towards the end of the fifth or sixth season they they completely fall apart i i think that what you're seeing now at this point in the show's run the wheels are not falling off yet, but they're getting loose. Like the car is shaking a little bit and, and this is not going to end well to, to drive that metaphor into the ground. And so what are these episodes for? What is their purpose? And, and what, and how do they tie into the show's larger interest in quote unquote, the truth? Well, number one, I will tell you, I'm really excited to see that crash. Like, I, 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 I'm looking really fucking forward to it exploding. <laughs> um, but number two, um, again, I think this is an important tone to go back to. We've been talking about the experimental nature of a lot of these episodes, especially as we're going into the fourth season. It seems like every Monster of the Week episode is their attempt to do something completely different and try something out of the ordinary. And in order to do that, we do need to have a baseline tone to go from. And the mythology is just the baseline tone. It's the... I can see the mythology eventually feeling kind of bland for a while because it's the palate cleanser, right? It's just a bite of cracker. It's it's ice chips. It's something that, you know, it's a bit of sherbet. This is what we do in order that the musings of the cigarette smoking man and the homes are going to and even the fields where I died are going to stand out and you know, this is where we experiment. This is where we go wacky. This is where we go weird. This is where we, you know, talk about a monster that's just completely crazy. And then we go back to aliens and conspiracies and all of that. And you know what's going to happen. And you know the notes that it's going to hit. And you know the elements. And we're going to combine them in some interesting ways. And we're going to, you know, do that. But for the most part, you know what you're getting in a mythology episode. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I, I think that's kind of what their function is at this point. Because... One one thing that becomes increasingly true as the X Files continues down, uh, uh, you know, in the seasons, is that the the standalone Monster of the Week episodes become harder and harder to pull off. And and what I mean by that is, the the show runs for nine seasons in its original run, and then there's you know two seasons to come after that. Uh, it just you get diminishing returns after a yeah. while. Like they're just hard to pull off in a way that is new and interesting and fresh. And so what the X-Files is doing, I think is, is a show that is continually reinventing itself. What is interesting about the mythology episodes is that they almost like, I think I've made this point before you made, you've made this point before that in a lot of ways, the mythology episodes feel like they're from a completely different show. And, I don't know that that's a problem because as you say, they are the palate cleanser, but at the same time, there's not really a lot to criticize about them because 
you know, they are what they are. I, you know, I don't think that they're really supposed to, they're not really interested in the, uh, in the, in the tone of the X-Files. They're not really interested in what the show is interested in at this point. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of like this weird relic of a previous version of the show that they're still having a good time with, but it just becomes increasingly weirder and weirder as the show goes on. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the line that Scully has to, you know, to the effect of, you know, I know you're going to go, I don't know how far I can follow you, you know, like lines like that, especially after the field where I died, which, you know, played them up as eternal soulmates. You know, I don't believe that they're ever going to be parted. I, you know, I know that David Duchovny is going to leave the show for a little while or permanently. I'm not quite sure how exactly that works, but no one else was ever really sure about that either. So you're in good company. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, it, it, it's even even when even when David Duchovny is gone from the show, quote unquote, permanently, there's still this weird air of like everyone's waiting for him to come back. <laughs> So you've got that to look forward to. Yeah, and the poor what's I I don't remember who replaces him, but that poor guy, like he knows that he's the temp. You know, I I have problems with the eighth and ninth seasons of the X Files, as everybody does, but you know, I think they're interesting. So we'll <laughs> we'll, well, we'll look we'll, forward. I'm looking forward to those. No, like yeah. I said, I'm look I I'm curious about how the train wreck happens because it's still. You know, I I have I wouldn't say that every episode this season has been successful so far, and we're only seven episodes in, which is you know a thing. But um, I life is like a box of chocolates. I don't know what I'm going to get, and right. sometimes it's a peanut butter cup. You know, cigarette smoking man was a peanut butter cup. Home was a peanut butter cup. Uh, you know, Tunguska is an English toffee, but there are a lot of, you know, mint whips that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that, like, I don't know, because to me, you know, at the end of the day, again, like these mythology episodes, they're they're fine. You know what you're yeah. going to get. I mean, I don't think that there's any indication that you think that they're going to give any sort of answers. I mean, at this point, it's an exercise in continuing the mystery as long as possible in spinning out this conspiracy theory as long as possible in giving us scenes of the cigarette smoking man mysteriously making plans with someone else scenes of Mulder and Krychek arguing you know scenes of Skinner uh doing whatever Skinner's doing shirtless uh you know scenes of Scully testifying before Congress and having you know weird secretive meetings with senators and it's all just kind of a mood. It's all just kind of a way for the show to say, yep, okay, we're still here and yeah. we're still interested in this mythology thing without ever actually having to give any answers. You know, it's it's a, it's a kick the can down the road sort of situation. And Tunguska, again, is just another kick the can down the road sort of thing. You know, Krychek comes, he has some information Mulder and he run off to Russia and get kidnapped by whoever the hell they are. And okay, you know, like what, what else are we supposed to do with that? Now we'll see, I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that mythology episodes never give any answers. And I certainly think that like the fifth, the, the, the movie, you know, in particular kind of gives some answers, but you know, it's that's not really the point yeah. of these episodes. The answers are not the point, and answers were never the point. So, eh, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that the version of the show, if it were created today, that's 10 episodes, all mythology, would suck. And the version of the show that's all Monster of the Week episodes would suck. And I feel like that tension in Ames is both frustrating and utterly compelling. Like, oh, yeah. That, I think that's the big, you know, I'm starting to see why this show went on for so long, because I can't figure out what, I still can't figure out what the hell The X-Files is. Yeah, and I, that's the thing. I mean, I think that when we get to the, the end of, of The X-Files, I don't know that you'll be able to answer that question either. I mean, I don't know that I would be able to answer that question, and I've seen the show, you know, in its entirety once. I've watched the first, like, five or six seasons a few times, so... You know, it, it's it's a weird show. It's a very, yeah. very weird show. 
Well, maybe the last thing that I want to briefly touch on then is is kind of the differences between um, the I forget her name. I apologize. Uh, the the added attache to the UN or whoever she is, Linda Lovelace. Um, yes, there you go, Linda Lovelace. Uh, a she has a really fucking big apartment for New York City, so good on her. Well, she's um, not really an attache, right? Like she is, you know. Some, but anyway, she, I don't know. She's like a supervillain or something. Um, <laughs> That the weird thing about her character, and I think this is a good thing that the show is doing, is making her very different from Deep Throat or Deeper Throat. You know, Mulder knows where she lives. She's not a mystery. He knows her real name. Uh, There's no indication given that she really has any dealings with the syndicate itself, although maybe she does. We don't know yet. But she's like, Mulder shows up. I need help. Yep. Okay, I'll help you. That's it. It's kind yeah. of refreshing in a weird way. I mean, they very deliberately, she's in a robe the entire time. She's in her apartment. They're very comfortable. I assume there is going to be some, you know, romantical goings on between them at some point. But, you know, there there is a, he, compare that to Deeper Throat, who neither he nor Mulder trusted each other for a second. And Deeper Throat really didn't like Mulder. Um, yeah, I mean, when, when Deeper Throat and Mulder had sex, it was very much hate-fucking. Yeah, um, and then, you know, of course, Mulder called Deep Throat Daddy, and that's, you know, that's a different thing. And, um, you know, the two of them were an ersatz father and son, but there was still a distance between them, just as there was a distance between Mulder and his actual father. Um, it's a very different kind of contact with uh, with Linda Lovelace now. Yeah, yeah. We'll just have to see where that goes. All right, well, I think we'll call it a day for this episode of the podcast. If you have any thoughts on either Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man or Tunguska, please leave a comment on the post for this episode at tuningandshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, which also supports our other long-running podcast, Truckabout. This week, we are kicking off the fourth season of Star Trek Voyager. We're talking about Scorpion Part 2 and The Gift. We are saying goodbye and hello to some new characters. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Tuning in Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes, Apple Podcast review for tuning in. It is the best way for new people to find the show. All right, next week, we're going to find out what happens to Mulder in Russia in the episode Terma. And we follow that with Paper Hearts. Mac, why do you...